So good morning. Any of you just joining us? I'm Joel. Let me start us off with a question. What were you doing on August 21st, 2017? Gina says, I don't know. Does anybody know what they were doing on that? I see a lot of heads shaking. Nobody? <sighs> Disappointed. This day was circled on a lot of calendars. For the first time in 100 years, we had a total solar eclipse that passed across the entire continental United States. It was dubbed the Great American Eclipse, and it was big news. Many people actually took the day off of work. They had watch parties. Others, like uh, many of us apparently, paid little attention to this once-in-a-century event. One pastor talks about how he was walking through a busy upscale art district in West Manhattan, and he witnessed an instant scene change the moment the moon began to step in front of the sun. The honking cabs, the restless commuters, the hyper-busy pedestrians were suddenly instantly transformed into a fourth grade elementary class on a science field trip. Cars came to a complete stop. Drivers stepped out into the street. Sidewalk traffic stopped to just stare up into the sky. They hadn't signed up. They weren't wearing the special keep you from being blind glasses. But the heavenly glory drew them in. For a moment they were mesmerized, looking up with wonder, like little children, celebrating this heavenly marvel with new friends on the street. They were passing glasses. But not everybody was happy. There were a handful of folks whose heads were not tilted heavenward. There were a bunch of children, big children, dressed up in business suits and other attire who were enraged at this sudden traffic jam. They grunted, they sighed, they used every possible nonverbal form of communication to tell everyone, get out of my way. I'm really important and you are slowing me down. The pastor wrote how ironic their posture was in light of perspective. He said, if you reverse their perspective, from the edge of the cosmos looking down instead of from 23rd Street looking up, things look quite a bit different. The annoyed, hustling, and bustling, highly important people angling their way through the obstacle course of onlookers seems insignificant. Here's what he's saying. Imagine being the moon, 200,000 miles above the planet Earth and watching its shadow swallow up millions every moment. Or imagine the sun, watching this little tiny dot cover up at a fraction of this little tiny blue marble. Imagine being the sun. You realize if we shrunk our galaxy, the Milky Way, down to the size of the North American continent, our entire solar system would fit into a coffee cup. Is anyone feeling small, powerless, urgently expiring right now? Friend, I have a word from the creator of the cosmos for you. Be still and know that I am God and I will be exalted on the earth. And I have a second word from an ancient astronomer who once looked up at God's sky jewelry 
and yet at the same time could hold together our smallness and our significance in each hand, he said this, when I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you should care for him. Friends, welcome to page one of the New Testament. Please turn in your Bibles or in our bulletins to Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one. As we come to the word of the Lord, let us first go to the Lord of the word. Let us pray. (laughs) Father, we want to praise you for loving us and sending your son to save us, to bring good news to the sad and to the small, to the weak and to the weary. We ask that right now you'll send your Holy Spirit to bring life to us who hear your word. And Lord Jesus, we invite you into this pulpit right now and ask you to preach yourself and all your benefits. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So this is how the New Testament opens with a long list of names and it's not often preached. Perhaps some pastors are wise not to look the fool trying to pronounce these names. Apparently this pastor is no longer concerned to try and prove otherwise. And for those who have not yet reached that conclusion, I appreciated a few looks of concern I saw. It's avoided. Why? Because this list is boring. Come on, Joel. 
40 plus names of long dead people I don't know. Get to the action. Yes, pastors feel pressure to keep your attention. Then again, maybe I'm wrong. Interesting, genealogies have become the rage recently. People spend money now, good money, to research family trees. Why? Because we've lost something. Surveys show that most Americans cannot name more than two or three generations of their family right now, of their ancestors. That leaves us, many of us, feeling unanchored right now. Some are longing to discover their roots. What we have lost as members of 21st busy transient America. I address you and I as members of a culture that is historically abnormal. In fact, abnormal in most of the world. The pace of life that we lead right now leaves us anxious and discourages us from getting very deep in any way. Our culture actually views, views time as a resource and not as a limiter. So we have to be productive with what we have, right? And the technology that makes our lives so easy, it's had also many other effects. Do you realize that prior to the light bulb being invented, Americans used to sleep an average of 10 hours a night? In 1967, a Senate subcommittee evaluating the impact of all these amazing new technologies, I mean, washing machines, phones, computers, they're, they're examining all this that's happening. They predicted that by 1985, the average American would work 22 hours a week for 27 hours of the year because they would have so much more or less to do and so much more leisure time. And here we are. Do we have less to do and more leisure time? <laughs> what went wrong? Friends, the problem is not so much out there. The problem's in here. Friends, you and I suffer from scurry sickness, the busy bug. We're handicapped by hurry. Like those New Yorkers, trying to find significance by never stopping. And it's all the result of the real problem, and here's what it is. Each and every one of us here has an adoration disorder. An adoration disorder. It began with the first humans, Adam and Eve. Humanity's parents. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and lastly, he made mankind in his own image. And God gave them mattering things to do on earth. Yes, things to do. And this work was actually life-giving. They were the pinnacle of creation, but they were still finite, limited. God still declared them very good, being finite and limited. And that's why God offered rest, that they might be refreshed. But our first parents never entered that rest. They wouldn't be still and know God, the God they were created to adore. And here's what happened that initiated our adoration disorder. You know what they did? They added something to their agenda. They added the one thing to their agenda that God said, not yet to. God said, you can do anything you want, but don't put in your planner that one particular tree. And God's enemy came up to Eve, and he said, you know, you're really lacking. You need more. Did God really say no? If you add what's forbidden to your agenda, you'll be like God. For the first time, 
Eve, a human being, began to adore something other than God. And she ate the forbidden fruit, and it blew humanity to bits. What happened, Joel? Well, the quote Bonnie Tyler, once upon a time, there was light in my life, but now there's only love in the dark. Nothing I can say, total eclipse of the heart. The first sin led to shame immediately, separation from God. Friends, we lost our light. We lost our original goodness. Our hearts darkened. We now look for love, apart from love's source, God. Sin's infection leaves us impulsively adoring and desiring forbidden fruits all around us, which, when you go there, leads to more shame, which leads to more scurrying, which leads to further separation from God. That is the story of Genesis. And I'm not talking about the rock band that ruled with Phil Collins. No, I'm talking about the first book of the Bible. And the book, you know how it ends with God's people in Egypt. And they're under the whip now of a dude. Turn the page to Exodus. The whip of a dude who literally wears a serpent hat. Sin led to slavery. Relentless brick making in the worst ever pyramid scheme. And friends, we're more alike than we are different from Egypt in 21st century America. Our agendas are full. And if it's not, you're looking to fill it. I don't have something to do. What's wrong with me? All because we have an adoration disorder. Here's the good news. Christmas is coming. Praise be to God. Are you ready for it? Are you longing for it? This is the cure to our disease. That's why we're in one of the two accounts that you find in the Bible where we can read the record of the first Christmas. How Jesus' arrival changed the course of human history. The four Sundays before Advent are called, the four Sundays before Christmas are called Advent season. And that word means arrival. And I want to be very, very, very clear about what this Matthew Advent series is going to be about. God brought to us, brought us here, each and every one of us here, to ponder the glory of the incarnation. The Son of God becoming human, a little baby born of a virgin. What have we come here for? What is this Advent series about? We have come to adore Jesus Christ together. We have come here to adore Jesus Christ together. That is what this Advent series is about. But in order to do that, we have to slow down. We have to see our smallness. And then we have to marvel at God entering in. Friends, there is a sacredness that comes only with stillness, with slowing down. There's a sublimity in smallness that comes with wonder at the Creator who is big enough to form this entire cosmos with a word, yet intimate enough to take real interest in me and my life and you and yours. We have a new monthly meditation. You'll find it at the bottom of our page. This is our memory verse for December. I want us to read it together. Let's say together, John 1:14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This right here is one of the most incredible truths. And I'm going to be so bold as to say, if you ignore taking in this verse once a day, you're going to suffer spiritual depletion this season. Think about it. The Word, and that's Jesus, God's Son, 
He became flesh and bone to hang out with us, to be with us. Our observable, only observable universe is 93 billion light years across. And someone bigger than that became a zygote. Mighty God became meager man. And Matthew is telling us that that was God's plan all along. God's plan was enter into our world to rehabilitate us so that we might rightly adore him once again. I have three words to encourage our adoration. The first word is a better Genesis, a better Genesis. Verse one could be rightly translated, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Jesus has come to bring us a better Genesis. It's what he came to offer us, rest and restoration. That's why we actually start most services, not this morning. I kind of missed it. We pause, right? Take a few deep breaths so we can hear Jesus call. And he says to us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Here's my heart, gentle and lowly. I'm the most accessible human being to ever walk the planet. And Matthew here, the New Testament, it begins by saying, slow down. Jesus has come. Adore him. Jesus is the answer to the hopes and fears of almost 2,000 years. That's how you could summarize this text. Actually, in both Luke and Matthew, you have accounts of Jesus' birth, these genealogies. Luke begins actually with Jesus and traces the family tree all the way back to Adam, the first man in Genesis. Matthew does the opposite. He moves forward from Abraham to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the better Genesis. Matthew shows us that Jesus was the plan before Abraham, the plan before Adam. And Matthew notes that Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. These are the two key figures he puts in front of us. You have starts with Abraham, you have 14 names, then you have David, and you have 14 more. And these two figures are super important in Old Testament history. God, how did he begin his great rescue mission, human rescue mission? He picks this pagan named Abraham, and he promises childless Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And God says in Genesis 15, Abraham, stop Look up to the heavens and try to count all the stars and imagine the size of your family. God says, be still and know that I am God. Abraham, look up and adore. And I can't help but wonder if Abraham's descendant, David, was recalling this when he penned. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? Now, King David would also be given a promise, a son who would reign on the throne forever, 2 Samuel 7. Of course, neither David nor Abraham would see this fulfilled in their day. And their fears would actually overrule their adoration. They had the same adoration disorder. Childless Abraham would take matters into his own hand about the seed, right? Impregnates Hagar, ruins his family. And David, standing on a rooftop, experiences a total eclipse of the heart. 
and his adoration disorder led to his own family's destruction. That is why Matthew will trace Jesus as Abraham's seed and David's greater son, but shows that Jesus is not biologically in their line because Jesus had to be sin-free. Verse 16 reads, The father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. Matthew highlights Mary as the only acting agent here. This is a supernatural birth. This is how the uninterrupted line of sinful man gets interrupted. The scurry and hurry sickness that can only, can only be healed in a new genesis, a new man. You see, here's our first problem. Each and every one of us lacks original righteousness. Abraham, David, you and me. We fail to be the good and holy people that God requires, what the Old Testament teaches, the Old Testament law. What we need to have a relationship with holy God is righteousness and not divine righteousness because we're not God. We need human righteousness. So the Son of God became man to become our righteousness. Matthew is actually giving us a new way to think about our Old Testament, and we're going to see more of this in chapter 2. We tend to think that the Old Testament was written for Israel and that it tells us about Jesus, right? That's the way we tend. And that's right, but Matthew's telling us something far more here. He's actually saying that the Old Testament was written first and foremost for Jesus Christ. <laughs> he was mankind's genesis, not just as the creator, but as the law fulfiller. Jesus had to learn the scriptures. He didn't have it downloaded into his brain because he was God. He had to learn the scriptures and then obey where Adam and Abraham and David failed. And then he had to be exiled to hell, the deportation, so that all God's promises could be yes and amen in him. Jesus became, was, came to be the first to fulfill all righteousness for humankind. Jesus is the true Israel. He's the faithful priesthood Israel was pointing towards. He's the faithful seed, the faithful king the king who would actually give us rest from all of our enemies. You know what that means? This means you becoming a Christian isn't about getting a second lease on life, a do-over, a second chance to be better. About you working harder, by the way? No, that's what we tend to think. No, it's about accepting who you are as righteous in Jesus, that actually God the Father looks at you and you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. You're Saint Elizabeth, Saint Cindy, Saint Gina, Saint Rex. And because that's true of you, because you have the righteousness of Christ, now you go and live like it's true, because it is. You remember who you are and who you belong to. Our second word is a new family. We adore Jesus because of our new family. This list actually, though, doesn't seem to be an old family, old family tree, nearly 2,000 years of Israel's history, starting with Abraham. Think of these guys. They all dreamed of the promised land. They dreamed about finding rest from the enemies, of shalom, of perfect peace. You know what they got? This tiny little window of relative peace during David and Solomon's reign. 90% of Israel's history is them rebelling, 
God leaving them to their enemies, and they get crushed by one empire after another after another. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and now the Romans in Jesus' day. This last group, actually, the last group starts with Jeconiah. You know, he was actually cursed. Read Jeremiah 23, 30. <laughs> what a messed up family. I mean, look at them. But Matthew makes it worse. How so, Joel? Well, some of us just celebrated Thanksgiving with family. And some of us have more holidays to come. And all of us here have folks in our family that we don't like to talk about very much, don't we? <laughs> folks that we maybe kind of hope won't show up for the celebrations because we know their reputation. Do you notice there are five women who made the list? And Jewish genealogies rarely include women in the list. This is a patriarchal society. But Matthew says, guess what? I'm inviting women to the Jesus family tree party. And you can imagine everyone who's there spilling their drinks at this moment. But it's even more shocking at the names he announces here. That those family members are coming who you'd never invite. First, you have Tamar. A Gentile woman who you don't want to be close to your male relatives because they generally tend to die. <laughs> and she ends up feeling so neglected. What does she do? In her despair, she pursues an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Hmm. Next, you have Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. Then you have Ruth, a Moabite widow. And Moabites, by the way, are like number two on the most hated list of Israel. <laughs> and then you have, oh, what's her name? Let's not even mention her. You know that wife of that Hittite guy who committed adultery with our great king. Matthew, what are you doing? You're ruining the Jesus family tree party by inviting these people in. You know what Matthew's doing? <laughs> he is saying that Jesus is a savior that absolutely anybody can come and adore. Sitting at the feast with great David, great Abraham, are the lawbreakers, the last, the lonely, the least, the lost the little in this world. Matthew is saying there are no good people, only bad people. Are you willing to admit that today? If you're a good person, actually, the gospel is not for you. It's not good news for you. How can it be? Jesus only came to save sinners who saw they had no hope in themselves and no hope in this world. These women got that. The one remarkable thing that all these women share is how they actually have the faith of Abraham. And in, interestingly, in times when Israel's faithless. They believe that God alone was their only hope. Tamar, Ruth. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute, a stranger to grace, a sinner of the worst kind. Living in a city doomed to destruction, filled with all of God's enemies. <laughs> and she looks to the mercy of Israel's God who shelters those who are strangers. And you know what? She flees the city of destruction like pilgrim with her fingers in her ears crying out, eternal life, eternal life, eternal life, leaving everything she knew behind. She wanted eternal life. And so I ask you, my not yet Christian friend, where are you? Where are you? Will what you're hoping in right now bring you eternal life? Will you come to an end of yourself and find your new genesis in Jesus Christ? But Joel, you don't know how bad my burden. 
you don't know how far I've fallen. You don't know how lost my life is. Look at the stories of these women. Read them. Read about these women who find themselves in Jesus' family tree. They are important to Jesus, and so are you, my friend. Hebrews 2 will actually quote Psalm 8, which asks the question, What is man that you're mindful of him? That's us. And the next line says, And the Son of Man that you should care for him. And Hebrews 2 says that the Son of Man is the Son of God incarnate. And it goes on to say, that Jesus is not ashamed to call any of us his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed. You are important. And it adds that Jesus came then to destroy our enemy, the devil, who held each and every one of us under the thumb of death. And he did so by making propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation. What, Joel? You said that word a few weeks ago. What in the world is that about? The writer is talking about the cross of Calvary. God's great plan to save humanity. And St. Augustine has this wonderful illustration where he compares the cross to a mousetrap. And Jesus, the Son of God, becomes this human bait. And guess what? Snap! The rat devil falls for it. Friends, the devil lost his power over you and me and anyone who goes to the cross of Jesus Christ confessing. You look in faith to Jesus to his sacrifice that he made, and guess what? His blood covers all of your sins. You come to Jesus and you no longer belong to Satan and he has no power over you. No claim on your life. And the moment you do, the very moment you come confessing your sins, believing, you're immediately engrafted into a whole new family tree. That's why Jesus came, to bring together a new family of folks of all colors and stripes. That's why Matthew begins the New Testament with this really strange genealogy. And how does it end? With the Great Commission. The call to go out and make disciples of all the nations. I'll add one more interesting thing here. Verse 17 says there are 14 names in each section. But unless you count Jeconiah twice, section 2 or section 3 has only 13 names in the list. There's a missing name. I'm wondering if Jesus' new family tree, if the point is it's not yet complete. That's true, actually, even if my number speculation here and what Matthew's doing is wrong. Perhaps you don't really know your ancestry. We've had a lot of foster kids. There's a lot of people in our culture who do not know their mom and their dad never met their grandparents. Perhaps you're disconnected from those who came before you. The gospel is good news because it says anybody can be adopted to the greatest family tree in all of human history. And all you have to do is come and adore its founder, Jesus Christ, Christ the Lord. So what do we think of this list of names now? Is it still boring? I hope not. One last word, and I'll try to be brief. It's a new perspective. And that's what I'm praying that each and every one of you gain or cultivate more on, improve on this Advent season. What new perspective does God becoming man provide us? Let me ask you this question. Are you a human being 
trying to become more spiritual? Or are you a spiritual being who ought to try to become more human? I spent the first minutes of my morning silently looking out the window, watching the darkness start to turn to a grayish light. And I found myself staring actually at this huge tree, which now has no leaves. A few months ago, it was full of green leaves, seeds. Then it started to change with the season, and then it's stuff started to fall to the ground. All that died, seeds as well, and they'll be the start of the next generation. That's the cycle. I was wondering about, as I sat there, the impact of the last generation on mine, and now ours on the next. Will our children be hurriers and scurriers, or will they be adorers and abiders? What can we do to help them come to Jesus and to adore them? We were at the parade last night. We saw churches with great displays and everything that they made. And I think that's good. That's wonderful. Maybe someday we'll do that. But perhaps we should think more about worship leading to witness and not the other way around. We want to witness to bring people to worship. But maybe we need to start to learn how to worship to improve our witness. Otherwise, we'll become human doings instead of human beings. So you wouldn't go out and get busy telling people to come and adore Jesus, but maybe we shouldn't right now. You know, the devil's trick is always to add more things to the agenda, right? To keep us from adoring Jesus. And I'm not even saying extra activities are in themselves sinful. No, don't hear me. But as Betsy Tenboom, I think she said, if the devil can't get us to sin, he'll get us to hurry. And then we'll miss the glorious reality this season of what it means that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's so easy to miss glory when we never stop moving. When humanity fell, you know, we began to master the art of hurry. And the result, one theologian puts it this way, and so we end up as good people, but as people who are not very deep. Just busy, not immoral, just distracted, not lacking in soul, just preoccupied not disdaining depth, just never doing the things to get us there. Friends, I want more than anything to see us taking in the divine, experiencing God, becoming human, and becoming intimate in our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he's offering that to each and every one of us today. Wouldn't you like to grow in your relationship, grow in your wonder? Wouldn't you like to become more spiritual, actually, and more human? How do we do that? Well, Dallas Willard said this, the only way to get there is to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I believe our own transformation, it comes from daily adoring, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. You realize if we're adoring Jesus, spending time abiding, maybe giving him just the first word every day before we start going about everything else people will begin to see something in you, something authentic, something that's real, that's true, that is gracious, truth and grace shown in Jesus. You're very, 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 very small. And your life is very, 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 very short. And God is very, 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 very big and totally eternal. And he is telling you today that you are important to him. 
question for you is what are you going to do with that? Some of us ought to slow down and cultivate adoration this season. You know well enough that Christmas is a really hard time to adore Jesus, especially if we're rushing around, planning all the get-togethers, and consume with giving and getting. The first place we need, the first problem is not with the environment out there, but the first problem is right here, with the environment in here. In fact, our lives end up becoming a mirror reflection of what's happening in here. So we need to find ways to be still and let God have the first word in our lives. And perhaps that means getting up 10 minutes early this Advent season to sit with God. If you're groaning at the thought, Pastor Joel wants me to lose sleep and adding one more thing to my agenda, I invite you to rethink what God says rest is. Bible rest is far more than physical. It's learning how to rest from the confusion, the rat race, all the illusions that are going to come at you in order to discover just for 10 minutes in the morning that God is my heart and my portion forever. And I'm longing for his second coming because as I meditate on his first coming, my appetite is whetted for more. So I want to encourage you to spend time in God's word, asking him to show you Jesus. Actually, Cindy had a great suggestion the other day. This Advent season, start reading one chapter of Luke. And you'll land on Christmas Day, chapter 24. Children, it's actually been a very long time since I heard a memorized catechism question. I would really love, though, for you to memorize our new verse of the month, for you to pray over it, spend time thinking over it. You realize you want to know Jesus? Do you really want to know him? It starts there. He's given you this word as an invitation to know him. I promise you, Let's adult big people, big children do that as well. God rewards those who diligently seek him, Hebrews 11, 6. So I close with just encouraging you to find ways to eliminate hurry so you can be more human by living through Jesus. That's why he came, so we could live through him. And perhaps go outside one night or sit at the window and watch the silent stars go by as we're about to sing and ponder with that amazing ancient astrologer, astronomer. <laughs> what is man that you're mindful of him? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, I just spoke a whole, whole lot of words, probably 4,000 words, coming at a rapid pace these dear ones you love and I ask and pray that each and every one who's here or listening that they may in fact hear Jesus and hear him calling them not to try to take in a whole lot or add to their schedule or anything but rather being still being small and discovering the wonder of being loved help us all to to just be amazed by what it is that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. May we be still before you, God, more and more, that you might be exalted in the earth as we come to know you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.